0: welcome back to the ask different podcast this is episode number 17 recorded october 29th 2011 i'm kyle cronin i'm jason solace i'm nathan greenstein and i'm kyle cronin but and i said jason that Solis. <laughs> 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 uh. so yeah it's been it's been two weeks since our last podcast so got a little bit of a breather here we've been getting actually record traffic on on ask different um I think we we peaked around, I think, 42,000 views a day, and yesterday we got uh, 24,000, which is just phenomenal. We've been really seeing excellent growth in traffic uh, ever since uh, iOS 5 was released. And if you go back to the uh, when the line was released in the summer, we also saw a very significant traffic bump for that that lasted and stayed. I mean, it, it sort of gradually went down a little bit, but I'm hoping that... Uh, We'll see the same thing with this iOS 5, and then we'll probably stick around maybe 20,000 views, or rather visits a day, which is
1: very, very good. And if this continues to happen every time Apple has a major product release, then we're going to continue going up pretty quickly, because they release big stuff. You know, there's probably every year, there's going to be either a new iOS or a new Mac OS X update. And so if we continue to see this kind of traffic increase for each, each one of those major major releases, that should be a pretty consistent source of growth.
2: Yeah. I'm really hoping for that. I kind of predict that iTunes match coming out might bring its own interesting array of questions just because there's the does it or doesn't it stream question. There's invariably going to be false positives and other similar issues. And, uh, that has a that has a good potential to bring some good content back to the site. Yeah, one of the things that I really think helps us is
0: Stack Exchange has excellent uh, search engine optimization. So when a new product comes out, someone asks a question about it almost immediately on our site, and people try to answer it. And if you know if we get you know the question and the answer, and then it gets indexed by Google, and then people start searching Google for the same question because. It's a new product, and you know they need to know the answer. Then suddenly we rank pretty high on the on the search results, and this is definitely a by design thing of Stack Exchange that works very very well. And so one of the things that we always try to do is that whenever there's a big thing that comes out, like like Lion or, or iOS five or something, that we try to seed the site with uh, well first well le- legitimate questions. Like if you have an actual question. By by all means, ask it. But also, we try to anticipate some questions that people might ask about it. Um, something that maybe you were reading about it and and you you didn't realize, but now you do, and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question about this, even though I know the answer, just to get the answer out there. And so we, we such really, as,
2: how do I reverse the scrolling
1: direction back to normal, or yeah, something like that,
2: and how to uh, re-enable key repeat instead of the accented characters picker
1: and the. Uh, Jeopardy questions where you you ask and answer are Stack Exchange approved, and they really are, I think, an important part of seeding the site for a big release. Because a big question, you know, if, uh, if you're not sure it's going to get an answer, then you should, if you know the answer, you should put it in yourself, because people coming from Google are probably not going to be particularly interested in a question without an answer.
0: Although, um, I'd have to say that if you are going to ask a question that you know the answer to let the community try to answer it before you just stick your own thing in there. Um, it's really frustrating when you see a question, you're like, I know how to answer this, but you go in there and then you realize that by the time, between the time that the, the person posted it and the, that you saw it, that the person that posted it also posted, there's a really, really detailed answer that you know that they had like typed beforehand. And it's hard to compete with that. So, you know, if you, if you want to ask an easy question, something that you may necessarily know the answer to, that's, that's fine. Just, Give some members of the community uh, the opportunity to answer it before you put put your own answer in there. I just think that's a, that's a little bit of a common courtesy.
2: And this is also one of the reasons why Stack Exchange prevents you from accepting your own answer. It's not just 24 hours after the question it's asked. It's 24 hours after you answer the question, isn't it? If it's if it's in fact your own question.
0: I'm not sure. Uh, but you're right. There is a limit on how quickly you can accept your own answer. Although I believe you can actually post an answer at any time.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Actually, if you accept your own answer, you don't even get the advantage of having that um, docked at the bottom of the question. That only happens if uh, you accept an answer that is not your own. So that's another, another advantage of having someone else answer the question: uh, is that if they if they do post a really good answer, that they you can permanently dock that below your question uh, instead of having your accepted answer floating somewhere. In in the uh, in the listing of the answers for the question, so Jason, uh, was was there so uh, something else you wanted to talk about in terms of ask a different?
2: There's been another thing that's kind of, that I've kind of started noticing on the site recently, and it's just that I've worked in a support context my whole life. I've always done internal support, and I've pr- I've done about half the time I've been employed done support for our the customers of our company, and um, I feel like I'm pretty experience to say that i know what a help desk looks like and one of the unfortunate trends that i do have to say that comes with this increase in traffic is that there have been a lot of help desk style questions that are coming out Uh, there's been a recurring theme that somebody will ask a question saying i'm having this problem with this particular program and there's no version information uh, especially with the a lot of the changes between lion and snow leopard the os version can make a big difference and none of these pertinent details are put in there. There's other examples where all of the version information is in there, but the question is just so ambiguous that it just doesn't it doesn't offer anybody the chance to actually answer the question. It instead turns it into troubleshooting, which honestly does not look good with Stack Exchange's layout. Yeah. Uh, Stack Exchange favors a large detailed question and highly prefers a large detailed answer. Uh, Stack Exchange is not a help desk. Um, this is also one of the reasons why, in the past couple of months, Stack Exchange has uh, implemented a feature where, when two people are going in comments back and forth, it offers you to put this placeholder text, other person, let's continue this in chat. And that's actually a really sensible feature because chat rooms can just be left open for archival purposes. They'll be frozen after a certain period of time of inactivity, but there's still this huge reference of discussion that should troubleshooting need to happen because the question turns out that way that there's a medium to do it but otherwise it's something that just needs to have as many details up front as possible not only so that the answers are concise but also because somebody reading doesn't have to read the whole history they don't care about the history they care about the problem perhaps why it's happening but most of all they care about the answer Which can only be complete and detailed if the questions offer the opportunity to be.
0: Now I know that there is no one listening to this podcast that asks asks questions like that, but if you go to the Ask Different front page, you know there's a non-trivial chance that some of the new one one or more of the new questions that are available are ones that Jason describes. And I guess the, most people sort of don't really know what to do. You know, Do I ignore it? What do I do? And if you have the necessary reputation, you can actually vote to close that. Uh, the appropriate thing to vote to close it as is not a real question. The description for that is, it's difficult to tell what's being asked here. The question is ambiguous, vague, incomplete, overly broad, or rhetorical, and cannot be reasonably answered in its current form. So if you can vote to close you can vote to close those kinds of questions. If you can't, you can actually flag it for moderator attention and just write that in the comments. Just say, you know, this is not a real question and moderators come along and quite frequently and we will, we will look at those flags and we will take action because uh, we have three moderators on the site and it would, it would take all of our time all all the time to look at every single thing that's posted on the site, so we really rely on the community looking at stuff to identify potential problems, and and to let us know, and and that's something that we would do. Like if if we if we see that someone flagged it as you know not a real question, we would go in and we would say, okay, well you know this is lacking detail, or it's clear that this person has not even put forth a minimum uh, amount of effort for someone to even want to answer the question. So we'll, we'll close that question.
1: We can't look at every question, but we do look at every flag. Oh yes. If you see something bad happening, flag it and we will see it. Yes. So yeah, we,
0: we do appreciate flags. Uh, And if we do decline your flag for whatever reason, please don't be discouraged. I I try to write a little note in Um, we have a few canned responses, but I try to write a little note in if if I decline a flag to say exactly why, you know, it shouldn't be flagged. It should not be seen as, you know, you are bad and you should not flag anymore. It should be. Well, in the future, this is, you know, this is why maybe that wasn't such a
1: great flag. And then you sort of alter your behavior in the future. If we decline the flag, it doesn't mean that it was a bad flag and that it shouldn't have been flagged. It it can frequently mean that it's something that could be a problem, but that we've already discussed on meta or in in chat or something like that. We've discussed it and decided that this is the per- particular thing we're going to do with these or, you know, it's OK, here's why. So, it, you know, if you're flagging something and we decline it because it's been we, we've we already decided that we're going to allow these, even though they're borderline off topic or something like that, then I will always try to link to the meta post where we decided that in the, the little note when you decline the flag. So the the goal with decli- declining a flag is not to say you're wrong. It's to say, well, actually, here's what happens. And here's where you can read about it.
2: I've had plenty of flags declined that were instead of instead of just arbitrarily closing the question or anything like that, either the question poster or somebody else who edited the question worked with the poster to get the details in order, perhaps because they understand the question better than I do. Right. And I actually th- this actually brings up an interesting thought. If multiple people flag the same question with either the same or different reasons, do all of those flags get lumped in as a...
1: We see we see the individual flags for the individual reasons from the individual people, but they are grouped in the queue. And if, a th- if something has multiple flags, it goes immediately to the top of the list. So if something has multiple flags, it's probably a bigger problem. So it's the first thing we see and the first thing we deal with.
2: The question primarily was, do you accept flags on like a post, a specific question or specific answer basis? Or do you have to pick one that you approve and essentially decline all the rest because the action was taken with the one that you approved?
0: Uh, if we approve it, um, then all the flags get approved.
1: Yeah. Um, and if you, you know, if it's if it's if there are flags on a question and you close the question, all of the flags are automatically approved. Just like
2: how you can see that this question was closed by this community member, that community member, this commi- right. this community member, and that moderator.
1: Right. So anybody who anybody who flagged it. They, they automatically, their flag was approved, and they get the, the flag weight
2: bonus. Yeah, this is one of those things that you can really see that Stack Exchange, I mean, this isn't, this isn't a dumb Q&A site. They put a lot of thought and reason into these things, and we, we all have our disagreements and whatnot, a couple, of, a couple of which I have on Metastack Overflow. But they always give you a reason, and whether you feel it's good or not, it's always a detailed reason. Stack Exchange has a lot of good, uh, a lot of good thought producers that put into the the thought and architecture of this site.
0: I do sort of wish, though, there was more of a uh, like a discussion channel between people that flag stuff or want to contact a moderator. We have a few channels of communication that we can use, and none of them are very desirable except in situations where we have um, a serious situation <laughs> because. If if we want to say contact the user, I mean we could we could email them, but that's kind of weird, um, especially if they provide the email address kind of in 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 good faith that you know we're not going to spam them or anything like that, and and also we don't have any official email accounts, so it would just be from some other random guy, you know, from my email address. Uh, there is an official way to contact someone, but that's for things like suspension and stuff, and. All that communication gets uh, CC'd to the community team, so uh, we don't want to use that channel unless we absolutely have to. And the only other thing is, when someone flags something, we can type a, a custom reason why uh, we're declining the flag, but we can't, you know, we can't say why we're accepting the flag. And I think that if there's multiple flags on a question and we decline it, first off, I don't think that's ever happened. If there's multiple people flagging something, then I think that. Uh, we recognize that there's enough of a problem to do something about it. Uh, the and,
1: tiny things in iOS five question comes to mind that's been flagged two or three times. Was it well simultaneously? Yeah. Um, I think there were two that first morning, and then there's been like another one a okay. couple days later or something like that. Well,
0: most of the time, I should say, if something's flagged multiple <laughs> times, <laughs> that you know we, we take it very seriously. But I don't think you can type unique messages to each. Person, not that you really need to, but so yeah, the the lines of communication, uh, you know, between users and moderators aren't what I would hope for. Um, uh, To that, I can only say, if you have any questions or issues or concerns or whatever, I mean, my email address is public information. If you go into my user profile, you will find it right there. And so, if you need to contact me for any reason, uh, you just send me an email. I got an email the other day from someone. Uh, I had deleted his answer because it wasn't an answer. It was just, "Hey, I was having this problem too." So then I got an email that says, "Can you undelete?" I I've solved the the issue, and so I go in and I notice that he's edited his deleted answer and put in an actual answer. So I undeleted it. I said, "Now that it's an actual answer, I'm going to undelete it." And it, it it just works really well. But it's you know I would rather people email me um, because. I'm willing to receive email. And if someone sends an email to me, then I can definitely send it back, uh, send an email back. But I, I'm not particularly fond of just emailing people unsolicited about stuff, unless it's a big thing.
1: <laughs> and same, same goes for me. I'm fairly sure I've got my email on my profile. I should double check that. But if there's any, you know, if I deleted your question or whatever, send me an email, we can talk about it. You know, ideally you would just flag it. But if, you're, if you don't have the reputation to, to flag a post then by all means, just send an email.
0: Yeah, uh, Nathan, you, you you have to put your email address in the About Me sort of section. Isn't it? No. Oh, all right. Well, I'll do that. Well, by the, by the time the like... show goes out, it will yeah. be in there. I'm yes. just sort of saying. <laughs> yeah.
2: And of course, there's always the points to bring up and that there is also... Uh, the meta sites for asking questions. I know a couple of individuals have made, have pleaded their case there recently. And then the two of you have been on our on chat pretty frequently. And that's a, that's a good casual environment. And it may not be the timeliest because you're not using chat unless you're not doing anything else. You're not at your prior obligations or anything of the sort, but there's, there's plenty of mediums and there's plenty of uh, means and the whole, the whole ability to uh, at reference someone in chat or in comments if they've been speaking on the post and have a uh, notification go to the global inbox is helpful and there's certainly a lot of possibilities.
0: Yeah, we get those as well but I mean those are obviously public conversations if it's either a comment or in the chat. So, I mean if it's something you want to discuss publicly, that's that's also absolutely fine, but if it's something that you want to discuss privately, just, you know, emailing is great.
2: Sure. Choose choose the best applicable medium for the particular issue. Yeah,
0: so the Steve Jobs biography came out on Monday. Jason, you've had a chance to read a little bit of it. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I've gotten. Uh, I've basically read the, the way that I would best describe it is that I've read the history of Steve Jobs, and the point that I'm at is right before his tour of uh, his tour of Xerox and the inspiration for the mouse and the graphical user interface and everything else, and just before the the development of the Lisa. It's, um, you know, we, we I used an uh, Apple IIe in elementary school and I've, I, I know some details about the early origins of Apple, but this has been a really insightful book because it's just kind of, it's, it's interesting to put a lot finer grain detail into a lot of these things that you hear about. Uh, I, I, there was a particular part in the start where Jobs and Wozniak were meeting each other going to Homestead High And they were talking about this gadget that Steve, uh, that Wozniak developed, that would scramble, that would create snow over the analog TVs that they had in their school. And I I remember thinking that I wonder if this is where people really thought, really learned to contort their body when they were having antenna issues, because it was talking about it was just this little button that he would push to fuzz a TV. And then when an individual would go up and like smack the TV, he would let it go, and they thought, "Oh, it's fixed. Look at that." But then he would push it again. And so they would grab the antenna, and th- there was there was a specific part where the individual that was trying to fix the TV would stand on one leg, and WAz would let off on the button. And so it was just this whole this whole around. Of how they had to contort their body how they had to manipulate the antenna in order to have a clean signal and actually be able to watch whatever they were watching um, I, I i'm sure this attitude this behavior predates any a, a a gadget that breaks tvs that that jams the signal but it's just kind of funny to hear this in such a purely in text and just imagine the situation that you're sitting in school. And nobody but Waz knows what's going on, perhaps, and so you're just laughing at this person doing all of these crazy things, lifting their foot, angling their body in an isosceles or a right angle or something <laughs> along the lines, and just to just to imagine people people still in high school having these issues to get their t v to work again. Uh, one, it was the seventies. I didn't have a TV in school till I was in high school, but that's kind of beyond the point. Uh but just to imagine this trouble that they were going through with this little nuisance troublemaker in class, it, it was a it was a really funny read. Oh, um I've already
0: w- Go ahead. Oh, um I was just that reminds me of <laughs> um when I was in high school, I had palm devices. Well, palm and and the pocket pc but they had the little ir thing on there as well and so one of the apps that i downloaded was a tv remote and i just remember i was in my latin class and i would just like (laughs) she's trying to she's trying to show a movie right and now that i look back at it i feel bad for her but um i I would like change the channel like every like five minutes (laughs) and and she didn't know what was going on she's like oh this tv is so terrible oh man but yeah i didn't get her to stand in weird spots but i yeah i did i did have my fair share of uh messing with people yeah.
2: <laughs> i've even done that in the car with the radio uh a uh aftermarket stereo had a remote and every once in a while i would just turn the volume down one notch and I remember my dad very distinctly. Uh, so I was turning the volume down one notch, like every minute or two, and it was Terrestrial Radio. And then I think instead of the volume button, either deliberately or accidentally, I hit the input button, pushing into the CD player. And I remember my dad saying, "Wow, that's a cool feature. Whenever it detects that the radio station is out of signal and there's another and there's a CD in, it goes to play it." I started laughing so hard. I was like, "Nope, that's just me and the remote." <laughs> <laughs> I would hope a radio that goes out that starts getting too much interference would just go to another station, maybe another preset. Yeah, plenty plenty of good examples to relate with in that situation. Um, Another, just a couple of other things that have really stood out is that I've drawn a very odd comparison to Steve Jobs' life as presented in the book uh, being very similar to Siddhartha, which is a book that I actually read in high school amazingly enough because the The details that I remember of Siddhartha were that he was a very he was a very committed dedicated persistent individual, and he would get what he wants uh, I'm talking about Siddhartha, although of course I'm making a comparison the jobs is very similar uh in the very start of Siddhartha he was at his home with his parents and he wanted to uh he he wanted to join i i I believe ironically enough it was like a Buddhist or some other Eastern religion. Um, and when his dad said that he couldn't, he stood, he stood up all night. He fasted. He just stood completely still, completely silent, not taking a break, not eating, not anything for the whole night. His dad comes down the next morning and says, okay, I can see you're committed. You're allowed to do it. And that's a very common theme in the start of the book is that Jobs got what he want, period. Uh, He, he would... Push around he he wasn't as a pacifist, perhaps he would uh throw tantrums and cry and anything along the lines, but he got what he wanted um he got what he wanted one of the terms of his adoption since his parents weren't college ed- educated was that his uh his adopting parents would put away for a college fund and send jobs to college uh he didn't want to go to one that his parents could afford he wanted to go to read in I feel terrible for missing these details, but I think it was uh, like an art school in Washington uh, or somewhere in the Northwest, and his parents couldn't afford it, but they wound up doing it just for him to attend shortly and eventually drop out of. But there, there's a story of Jobs working on a working on an apple farm, which goes into the origins of the name. Uh, backpacking around India and a lot of uh, a lot of Europe for both for work and for pleasure because there's a big uh a big religious I'm not even sure I quite know the words for this there there was a big part after he fulfilled his professional obligations with Atari to fix an issue in Germany that he went to India and had his his spiritual quest that he he learned under a Zen master and he just slummed around hitchhiked around backpacked around India and a lot of different things about his not really his upbringing but the ways in which he turned a new eye to a different area of the world to to a section of the world that he's never seen before it's been it's it's been a really interesting read so far and this is just the first seven chapters i think i'm on just on the start of the eighth right now and it's it's detailed. Between all of the interviews that Walter Isaacson did with people that Jobs knew, uh, interacted with, and what have you, there is a ridiculous amount of detail in here. Yeah, that's the point, but it's, it's unrepentant. It's raw. It talks about his drug use. It talks about getting his girlfriend pregnant and essentially disavowing her and uh, their daughter, and it talks about his... His reflections from inter- from Walter interviewing Steve Jobs and how he would not have done that the same way the next time, but it's a really interesting read for you know as I say a man that's been private a lot of his life at least his personal life
0: yeah you sort of see a lot of the early story in in movies like Pirates of Silicon Valley and there have been other books written about it I'm really I'm really looking forward to the sort of second chapter at apple of his uh basically you know what is what was his story since he came back to apple in uh, 97 right yes um and that's something that has not been written a lot about just because um he's a very private man and no one has had had access to him and unfortunately you have not arrived at that section yet so you can't (laughs) tell us jason
2: (laughs) Um, i'm i'm pretty interested in it because this is this is all the things you hear about, especially lately, in the history of Steve Jobs, the history of Apple. But it's uh, it's it's really interesting to get so many personal details of a person in this kind of a situation, and he's not he's not business trained. He's just picking up habits that he deems worth it. And there's a lot of there, there's a lot of pointing out. Well, this is where he learned his, his showmanship, and this is his personality and his you know unrepentant manners of. Getting what he wants and getting what he needs, and I do, I do uh, I, I kind of wonder to continue you, so much more in the Apple and the Apple history as well.
0: I do kind of wonder. You mentioned that there was a story about him working at the Apple Orchard. Uh, I, I, it seems that that was probably obviously that was the origin of the of the name of the company of, of Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine there is probably lots of details like that that were not put in the book because they didn't later support some larger thing and so it when you i imagine that when you read the book it almost seems like an inevitability like well we well early on we mentioned that he worked at an apple orchard and later on he names
2: his company apple and so it, you get this it happened of- in pretty it, it happened very quickly back to back because um when they were when jobs and apple and uh mark macula i believe were really ramping up the productions of the circuit boards and whatnot for the Homebrew Computer Club. Uh, Waz had just picked jobs up from the airport where he was working on, I believe it's called One Apple Hill, uh, on a farm that a buddy of his owned. Uh, th- There's so many names that are f- that are running around my head, I feel terrible in the sense that I don't have all of these fine-grained down, but it's it's a lot to take in. Um, the The story of naming the company was pretty was pretty obvious in the sense that Woz picked up jobs from the airport. They were talking about operations and business and because, <laughs> because Steve jobs was a fruititarian uh, and because the, the farm that he was working on was so heavily Apple based there were just so many, uh, there were so many Apple trees and whatnot. And he prunes the Apple trees. I believe they decided to name it Apple computers because Apple, it, it Computers have historically had a very harsh, a very steel, a very mechanical sound, and Apple, the name Apple, really edged that off. It was very unconventional, but it provided a – it softened the edge, I think is actually a sentence used in the book, something along those lines. And they said if they couldn't think of anything else other – if they could not think of any other name within the next 48 hours, they would go with it, but it stuck.
0: I like the name. It's simple. It's
2: (laughs) – it really is. And now it's no longer Apple Computers Company, as they started out with. It's Apple
0: Inc. I actually remember the day that they they put that on their presentation. And it was kind of late in that, you know, they already had the iPod. And I believe they still, they had the iPhone then. But it, it did sort of officially mark a transition in Apple's history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we used to be a computer company. Now we are a company that makes, you know, computers, but we also make iPhones, iPads, iPods, and it just shows a, a difference in focus in the company.
2: Web services and digital goods and could, yeah, people, yeah. people call it more consumer electronics. And that's true to an extent, even though everything you could call everything they make a computer, it's just the media on top of that, that they also provide that really makes the difference.
0: You know, that's actually, that brings up um, an interesting point that I was making a little while ago. Um, So, what is a computer?
2: This is a microprocessor and a lot of heat.
0: Well, okay. (laughs) Um, So there is a site on the Stack Exchange network, uh, super user, that is it's basically for computers. You know, computer hardware, computer software questions. So the the question is, you know, is something on topic? And about you know, is is technology X on topic? and the que- and to answer that question, you have to say, well, is X a computer? And so they made some interesting decisions. They've decided that things like iPads are not computers. Things like gaming consoles are not computers.
2: Um, mobile phones are also... Mobile phones are definitely
0: not, not computers. But I think that as we go sort of in the future, uh, the line between what is a quote-unquote computer, uh, which is, you know, you, you go to Best Buy, it runs Windows... <laughs> Uh, you you take it home Um, and the, and the the line between something like a, like a tablet, like an iPad or something like a windows eight tablet. I think that that's going to be continue to get blurred in the future Um, because they're saying, okay, well the iPad is not a computer. Well, why is it not a computer? I mean, clearly there are some people that can do everything they want to do with a computer, with an iPad. They can check email, they can browse the internet, some people said, well, you know, it's because you need a computer to connect it to, you need a computer to sync it with, with iTunes. Well, with iOS 5, that's no longer the case. So is it a computer now? Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> is it a computer now by Merit of Software Updates?
0: Well, yeah, that's, that's it's kind of interesting. Obviously, they're not allowing Android tablets either. Um, but what about Windows, Windows 8 tablets? Are those computers?
1: It's the same operating system as Windows Desktop. With you know, tablet version, but it's it's the same foundation and it's the same. The Metro half of it is is the same.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, apparently the the Windows 8 uh, tablet prototypes that have gone out can run old Windows apps and there are ways to get it like the old Windows desktop. So it's pretty clear that there is you know, that it is a computer. You know, you can run Microsoft Word on it. You know, you can run Visual Studio on it. It is a computer. But what about I th- I think that uh, Windows is trying to make a transition to ARM processors and I believe that the old legacy apps that were compiled for x86 will not work on ARM. Is is that's the case, right? Absolutely correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have basically the same exact interface but no legacy app support. Is it still a computer,
2: you know? No legacy <laughs> app support for Microsoft for the first time in what ten years?
0: It's 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 a lo- It's been a long time, and quite frankly, I think that it's something that Microsoft should have done a long time ago. Uh, their obsession of keeping legacy app support and Windows and all that stuff is, I think, have very much held them back. Um, what they should have done is they should have just done a completely clean break and said, "Okay, well, Windows, we, we're still going to." continue to make windows and support windows and windows will still be uh you know you buy a box you stick you connect it to a monitor or keyboard and mouse that is a windows computer and they uh create like a separate product category that is just like a touch kind of interface based on metro and so no legacy app support no legacy desktop just completely new and and but make it very clear to developers and say, "Look, this is the future. Um, this is where we're going to be moving to We're going to be moving things like office apps to this platform, this touchscreen um, hybrid platform between like a tablet and a laptop and and desktop and stuff like that and over the next few years, encourage developers to write apps for it um, and this is not a transition you can make overnight." Uh, Microsoft has actually made one such transition before, and that is switching developers from writing um, code that targets the direct CPU architecture to targeting .NET. And they've got a lot of developers on board, but they've never actually pulled the rug out and said, look, now you can only write .NET apps. And I think that there are a lot of legacy software uh, companies that are still selling software, that only runs directly on the hardware. Um, I mean, I don't, I I think things like, you know, Photoshop and stuff are still running, compiling directly to the hardware. I mean, partially this is for speed, but partially this is, no one has forced them to act. (laughs) It's kind of like Apple with their carbon APIs. Apple is sort of gradually now saying, okay, look, you no longer get 60, 64 bit support with the carbon APIs. and, very very soon we were we are going to be uh, disabling them all together. So get on board. But it's been ten years since since the transition to OS ten and and the push for Cocoa. Uh, so these things take a long time, and the sooner you start, the sooner you can be done. And I think Apple is in a really good position right now because uh, they trained developers to write Objective C and Cocoa apps for many years, and then they created a whole new platform iOS that was okay. Forget all this legacy stuff. That is no longer available. Uh, you can only write Cocoa apps and you can only write them in the sandbox environment. And I think that because of the popularity of the devices that, po- that and, and, and the app store, that platform has boomed. And, and um, they're not burdened by trying to support all this legacy stuff because they were able to start with a clean slate several years ago.
2: I can point to a few examples of app developers that take their iOS built applications and adapt them very subtly for you know just perhaps the difference in interfaces and whatnot, and then re-release them on the on a uh, on an OS ten targeted environment because it still has a uh, it still has a place.
0: Well, let's hope that they you know tweak the design a little bit because that's <laughs> <laughs> what, um, interacting with an iOS app on. On right. like and that's desktop. my point.
2: That's yeah. my point. The difference, the difference in the interface, they, they can make it a menu bar app, they can make it a windowless app like Sparrow. Sparrow would make a beautiful mail replacement if it's targeted for really making Gmail functions quite a bit better. Uh, and I've actually wanted a good alternative mail app on iOS for some time. That's granted, that's the opposite direction I'm talking about. But the point is, is that these frameworks are so common and so similar, that the work is actually pretty trivial to do. So far yeah. as I hear, anyways.
0: But yeah, sort of going back to my my ultimate point, I think that um, some of the criteria to determine whether or not something is a computer is a little arbitrary. Like, you could say, okay, well, Macs, obviously Macs are computers. And Linux, li- li- you know, if you install Linux or something, that's a, that's a computer. Well, what about Android? Android's running Linux. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... How do you how do you make that determination? I mean, Linux running on, Andru- on 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 an ARM processor. I mean, does it have to have a keyboard <laughs> to be a computer? Well, what if you can plug a keyboard in? Like, what if you got something like the the Motorola Atrix, where if you if you hold it in your hand, it's just a phone, but you you can plug it into this little desktop thing, uh, desk dock thing. Sorry, <laughs> and and you can plug a keyboard and mouse, and you know you got a whole windowed environment. I mean. What is that? Is that a computer? <laughs> so I think that these these are
1: questions that uh, super users going to have to really think about. Something like a Chromebook too where it's it's um, you know running Chrome OS which is it is an operating system. It's not a mobile operating system, you know, not like a mobile phone operating system, but it's you know fairly limited in terms of access to the file system and and that sort of thing, you know, it's all Almost all web, so you know is that a computer if it's just web based and you know it, yeah, it has a keyboard, it has a, a mouse or trackpad, I guess, but it's not like you you write apps that work with the file system and that sort of thing it's it's web
0: do we know if they allow Chromebook questions on Superuser?
1: I don't know if they do allow Chrome os uh, let's see
0: here uh, i don't I don't see oh yeah they they they, have, they do have a Chromebook tag that has five questions one of which is closed and that was not as off topic so apparently it is on topic for super user Uh, apparently their criteria is does it have a keyboard and some sort of pointing device Um, and also five questions kind of shows you how popular the chromebooks are
2: (laughs) (laughs) or it could be it shows you how many problems there are Oh, that could be. Yeah. <laughs> because like Google said, if you have a problem, just replace it with another one. Yeah. And everything and like will be right. $50 a pop.
0: Those things are more expensive than like cheap, low-end, regular, you know, Windows-based computers. Yeah. That you can run Chrome on. It's just... <laughs> Google, gosh. First off, I think that now that um, uh, Larry Page is CEO, I think that he's kind of not as keen on the Chromebooks as uh, uh, Schmidt was um, so I think that they're probably gonna you know fade into the night but I think come on 400 like $450 dollars for a Samsung Chromebook really really <laughs> it's just way too expensive for what you get for the hardware
2: I'm pretty sure I actually heard the opposite that um that Schmidt was the one that was turning down a Google operating system. But over the course of a year, perhaps they hired a lot of people that were in the realm of making a good operating system. And Larry and Sergey just kind of pulled the carpet out from under him in a matter or, <laughs> out from beside him. And they had the staff to dedicate to the project.
0: Maybe. Um, I, for, I, I think there, I remember from somewhere that, uh, back when he was working for, was it Sun? that he had this 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 vision of all these 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 dumb terminal clients connected to this main server thing and i think people were drawing comparisons with the the Chromebook and in Google's infrastructure uh and sort of assuming that he was behind the project but I, I i again it probably wasn't actually stated for sure and it's very possible that it's something that you know he, he was either disinterested in or maybe against and he was he was overruled um it must be a little weird being the ceo but having like the two founders and primary shareholders like being there every day and you you know if if you do something that they don't like they can just come in and they
2: can just say nope you're you're doing what we're telling you um i don't think that somebody working at sun having a vision of dumb terminals connected into the central system is a vision, I think he opened his eyes, and they still have that hardware there. I could be wrong, but businesses of that scale usually have some really legacy applications.
0: well, it was kind of kind of his like vision for the future, like everyone would be using dumb terminals connected to uh like like a, a fast infrastructure, and actually that's not a bad vision to have because i think we're kind of
2: headed that way a little bit with with a lot of the cloud stuff we're already there and that's not that's not a that's not a future thinking vision that's a recollection of the 80s and yeah we're already there i look at look at all of our ios devices especially nathan's (laughs) where does the bulk of that processing come from
0: what you mean for, for
2: Siri? Sorry, yeah, I didn't set that Siri, up yeah. At all. Siri. Um, and I mean, yeah, Siri dictation. The 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 majority of the Siri commands go out to the internet. All of the dictation goes out to the internet. Well, and look at all look at all of these web services that do the work for us and then just tell us when it matters. We're already there again. And no, that's not a bad thing. I I hated the dumb terminal and mainframe model, but I love a simple client and a powerful server model
0: and that is one of those things that if you if we sort of want to bring it back to iCloud um, the most active thing that iCloud does for you is it will <laughs> it will get your email like if someone sends an email to your at @me.com email address there is a server somewhere in Apple's data centers that will process that and push that to you otherwise uh it's all reactive so you edit a contact on one device it gets pushed up to the cloud and then back down you know but you don't actually get it doesn't act on your behalf in any capacity other than receiving email. So with with something like Gmail, I can set up uh filtering, I can, you know, set things to forward if I want them to, and this is all done server side um and it happens without me having to to do anything or have any computers on that do that automatically. Another example is Google Reader. I can uh if I wanted to, I could leave for 3 weeks not check Google Reader, uh, and then come back, and I have a bunch of tons and tons of feeds. Whereas the the more traditional um, RSS client would run entirely locally. And so if you leave for three weeks and you come back and then you start to refresh your, all your feeds, uh, it would have to pull all, all that information down locally. It hadn't even been checking in the meantime. And this is a problem because... There are a lot of feeds that only that have a limited number of of things that they serve up and um you know if you go away for three weeks and you come back, you're not gonna wanna uh you're not even gonna be able to pull down say four hundred uh end gadget articles or whatever <laughs> you know what however many that they published in the meantime uh just because those those older articles have fallen off their queue and and I realize that a lot of people aren't really gonna wanna read. 400 uh, Engadget articles (laughs) Um, they'll they'll just sort of cut their losses but at the same time you you have stuff like that you have say for example RSS uh, reader apps for the iPhone and the Mac and I'm sure that a lot of them would love to be able to switch to iCloud but uh, since iCloud can't do anything other than basically act as an intermediary uh, pushing information back and forth uh, it's not really. It, it doesn't really match the model that they need for for cloud apps to use.
2: Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have the completeness factor that they're going for. The, I remember reading. I believe it was shortly after iOS four because it was really when back multitasking backgrounding was there, but it wasn't. You know, everything they wanted. It wasn't a, wrapped up in a nice, neat little package to unlock all the doors that had been closed previously. And I remember people talking about. Uh, Twitter apps, for example, that they would like to be able to receive uh, notifications. They, they want their timeline to be fresh when they open it. They want to be able to receive notifications of direct messages and mentions, uh, at, mention, at mentions, not by not by email or SMS or anything like that. They just want it to be there. And for what it's worth, EchoPhone has created that. And then there's a few alternative services like Prefetcher, which has unfortunately kind of gone away. Um, I believe it's a box car that can do something similar. Um, but there's all of these, there's all of these out of band, meaning not on device services that will do this for you. And again, just tell you what they need. The point, the point remains that this model has taken up for, for having a, a, not a dumb client, but a limited client. And considering that we've skirted, you know, two, four, maybe even eight cores to some people, uh, we've dropped the amount of RAM and we've more than halved the processing speed, uh, and not to mention battery is now once again a very big consideration. It makes sense to leverage all of this computing power and all of these great services that people come up with, and then just provide a generated result that is very technically capable of presenting it in a pretty manner to the to the end user on their mobile phone, tablet, whatever. Yeah, mainframes, welcome back. <laughs> <sighs> and it really is. My my first job, I worked with dumb terminals that were a nightmare to support, especially physically. And we we had the mainframes in our office and they were big, they were cumbersome, they were archaic and had very strange commands that somehow I still managed to learn. And then we went to the do everything on your computer world and now we're back. It's just that they're all more technically competent and the language is actually readable to somebody who didn't spend months and months and months learning it.
0: Yeah, as, as connectivity gets better and better, we will definitely start to see even more shifts to uh, doing stuff in the cloud. And of course, there's a bit of an ulterior motive that companies have, because uh, the more things that they're doing on your behalf, the more they sort of get to peek at what you're doing. <laughs> um, uh, so Horace did you made uh, this point on one of his uh, the critical path shows that he does with Dan Benjamin, is that things like Siri uh and and Amazon's silk that are transferring some of the processing to the cloud in addition to offloading the work that your device has to do they also get to capture that information and aggregate it and and so Apple you know if they if they want to say improve Siri they know exactly what, what people are asking it um they 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 probably even have the raw audio so that they can do better better training and and that's that's good but they also have a very uh deep look at what people are are asking their phones for and you sort of have to wonder is is that something that we want these companies to to start uh collecting aggregating maybe even selling or distributing because typically, uh, the the model has been that all that stuff is done locally, and then yes, you can sort of your your service company like AT and T or or whatever will see traffic that's going back and forth.
2: The innocuous version of this is things like Twitter trending tags and uh, trending topics, and search engines like I think Yahoo still publishes either a weekly or monthly aggregate search top ten. Um, and that's that's the that's the okay so this is cute this is the this is the popularity contest this is what's happening now or was happening what have you but the point is that unfortunately common carrier status is perhaps going away uh this was a pretty big deal with at&t that split their feeds one to routing it to everybody and second apparently like directly into the nsa offices Um, and if it's not if even if it's not political, there's plenty of stories about information that's not necessarily anonymous and aggregated being sold to marketers, and that's the whole crux of targeted advertising um There is no doubt in my mind that with is silk already out for the uh, for the um the uh, Kindle classic whatever the the low base model's called no, it's just for the fire. Okay, um, um which I don't think he's even out yet right. There's no doubt in my mind that when silk is out ready in use and everything else, all of that data, if there's a particular product that you that uh, if there's a particular site that involves a product and Amazon has it, they will pitch it to you in the recommendations That's not necessarily a bad thing, but considering that it's your traffic and we're used to it being a more or less private affair, it can catch some people off guard and that is that is of relative concern for if it's, if it's not something that's bad, but somebody finds a reason to disagree with it. Um, it there's no doubt in my mind that Amazon's going to use it to market to you. That that's, and how, how good or bad that is, is entirely up to the uh, entirely up to the user.
0: Well, also um, I believe that someone in Congress sent a letter to Amazon to get an idea of exactly what information they were collecting and what they were using it for, for the the, the silk stuff. So mm-hmm. it does show that uh, maybe there are people in Washington that are concerned about this. Uh, I don't really, I'm not going to hold my breath because it's quite possible that, uh, you know, it's election time and it's it's time to put up a good show, sure. but... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's something that hopefully, if we actually do have um, people that represent us uh, in some sort of governmental capacity, uh, that they're able to to really force Amazon to answer these questions, and if they're if they're doing something unacceptable, then force them to to, uh, to comply with uh, certain restrictions. Which is, I think, you know, one of the good functions of government.
2: I seem to remember Al Franken sent that letter. He him both him and Obama are considered like the the technological political individuals. Obama with his uh iPad two personally delivered from Steve Jobs and whatnot before it was even released. Um Oh you know what would be a great Halloween costume? Al Frankenstein. I'm sure that's never been done or thought of before. <laughs> um, I, I seem to remember, I, I know I read a lot of articles about that and I seem to remember most news outlets were satisfied with the answer that Silk can be turned off and that if it needs to be private, it can all be rendered on device at the expense of speed and battery. Right. Which is, of course, the trade-off you have to make with when you're, when you're skirting a server-side service.
0: What I would like is um, to have some sort of common protocol whatever uh for for typical cloud features and to be able to specify on devices like i want to use these servers as opposed to these servers for my my cloud operations so people that you know, that are concerned about this, you know, they can set up their own virtual private servers on, on a company that they trust or, or large companies. If they're concerned about this information, leaving the confines of their building, they can set up servers within the company that will handle that sort of stuff. Uh, So I, I I do think that um, that would be a really good feature to have. Um, The simplest one is of course, just storing data. Um, If the uh, Amazon S3 protocol or implemented in some sort of standard open source software that you could just install and then you could say, well, this application that was written to use S3, I want it to use this server instead. And so that would enable you to have complete control over exactly who has your information. Um, unfortunately, there's just such change and such such rapid change in, in the... Uh, the cloud department of, of, of technology nowadays that currently it's impossible to capture everything you, that you'd want to have from a cloud provider. So our question of the week this week is exactly what are the limitations of geofence reminders in iOS five? This was asked on October 19th by Jish. And so Basically, uh, he poses a few questions. You know, if I'm sitting in location A but plan to leave and set up a reminder that will go off when I arrive back at location A, will that work? Uh, And I live in Manhattan and my home address stored in my contact information is not what my iPhone thinks my location is when I'm sitting at my apartment. My iPhone thinks that I'm three buildings down and across the street. Will geofence reminders work if I tell them to remind me when I get home, even though home is not exactly where the iPhone GPS thinks that I live? And so we actually talked a little bit about this on a previous show, uh, where I mentioned that uh, I turned off my Wi-Fi on on my device, but I, I left on the three G and every, and everything else, and how location reminders did not fire at all. And Jason was actually going to try out some some stuff, and and so what did you find out, Jason?
2: Uh, the specific example was that I was about to I was about to go make a drive and I was going to set up a geofenced reminder for the couple of places that we were going to be at in Colorado Springs, uh, but the unfortunate answer is that with the iPad that those don't exist at all. So the first limitation of geofenced reminders is that they are iPhone only. Uh, having said that, I also didn't actually test them with my iPhone, so the The proximity thing there's there's conflicting information and i'm not sure that there's really a definitive answer yet because i've heard that for battery reasons and whatnot this is obviously not driven by gps because leaving your gps on at all times will decimate your battery in a hurry um the two stories i've heard are wi-fi triangulation which is fairly good but more specifically cell phone tower triangulation which obviously can only be guaranteed to work on an iphone of any kind, because the, those always have the capability of communicating. But your example seems to say that. What exactly did you say that you turned off? Wi-Fi.
0: So I left on.
2: I and left on the cellular. Fire. So it
0: should, it should. You know, if it was based on a GPS, um, or at least had a fallback to run on a GPS, then it should have worked. I would have assumed. Um, I mean, maybe it was just a bad. A GPS lock that, you know, it thought I was somewhere else and therefore uh, didn't fire. So uh, I'll have to play with it more. But when I turn Wi Fi back on, you know, it started working immediately.
2: Because I've heard that basically because the cell phone functions are always running um, while not, while potentially not as reliable, that it actually the the core services of the phone you basically you register to the location which is what you do when you make a reminder and then it is guaranteed to work at least by cell phone triangulation and perhaps more precisely with wi-fi triangulation so i guess the example is before you turned wi-fi on did you look at something like maps and see the confidence level and have it tell you where you might be
0: no i didn't do anything like that i i I should (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, this is I, – I could swear that I read some kind of documentation that talks about exactly what happens when you register for a specific location and that in order to save battery life, the system, the, the, the core services, whatever you want to call them, take over the responsibility of knowing where you are and when the phone detects that you are in the particular location that your, phone, that your uh, app has registered for, then it sends a notice into the application that can respond appropriately – display a message tell you to invoke the app to get information what have you
0: yeah although I should say you you said something was guaranteed and i I think that this is we should stress that it's actually not guaranteed to remind you about anything and I don't think people should use it to be absolutely guaranteed to remind them of some of something uh, just because there are those inherent um, limitations and potential errors in actually identifying where you are so
2: yeah the, the slip of the tongue i i, I kind of stop myself at the same thing or right, at the same time right after i said that i was like well wait, not, not guaranteed we obviously just proved that wrong mm-hmm. um so the only answer on that question so far is from b mike and he says the the interesting tidbit in there is that he says uh to make a reminder start by turning on at a location and choose when i arrive instead of the default when i leave sometimes i have poor location signal and the alarm may go off Uh, He's essentially meaning prematurely, but that seems to happen very rarely in practice. So he's uh, to to answer the question as it was asked, he is saying that if you schedule a reminder for when you arrive, it will fire when you leave and return because what B-Mike, I believe to be saying is that the triangulation sent him to a location that was outside of the threshold far enough. And then it returned to where he lives. And so the reminder for when he arrived back at where he already was went off. That unfortunately still doesn't answer the question of which medium did it. Because I I, I would much more quickly attribute that to cell phone triangulation than Wi-Fi triangulation. Because when you are somewhere, Wi-Fi signals don't generally change enough to have that dramatic an effect.
0: I have seen things where... Um the uh like the skyhook wi-fi van or whatever (laughs) as they're driving around um and sort of geotagging wi-fi locations that they might like drive by an airport and they'll pick up the airplane wi-fi and so (laughs) and so you could be uh you know you could be standing in like you know LaGuardia airport or whatever and it would say that you're in you know Uh, dallas fort worth or something (laughs) because that's that's where the plane was when they did the 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 (laughs) drive-by
2: and there's similar examples of this there was a question on ask different some time ago or possibly one of the other Stack exchange sites that was talking about uh an an individual lived in uh, we'll say philadelphia at the time but he moved but and so as a result whenever he's home He's listed as being in Philadelphia, but whenever he's out and about the rest of the location services take over and he's in, we'll say uh, Kansas. And so that, that is one of those things that can cause those similar conflicts.
0: Yeah. So our app of the week, well, we're actually going to be splitting this. It's, it's two apps, uh, but they, they serve the same purpose on different platforms. Uh, So the first is notational velocity. And Notational Velocity is a Mac app that is really, really simple. Basically, the way I have it configured, I should say, um, it's not the default, but the way I have it configured is that on the left-hand side, I have all my files, um, which are basically just text files in a folder. And so I've got the the file name, and then the first, I believe, two lines of the file are are listed, and it's just a standard list. And on the right-hand side is the contents of the selected file. And then at the top is a search box. And so you can type in the search box and then it will search among the contents and file names of all the files and then show you the files that match. And if it doesn't find something that matches, all you're going to do is hit enter and that creates a new file with that name and then you can just start typing. So it's really, really simple to just, you know, if you want to jot like a, a very quick note down or you, you're just brainstorming or something, you can just go into Notational Velocity, uh, type the file that you want, and then just hit enter and then just start typing. So this is this works really well. Um, by default, uh, I believe the notational velocity shows the files. Um, uh, you know the 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 panes are stacked vertically, where you've got the pane either above or below is the file names and and the the short descriptions, and then below that is the actual file. I prefer it so they're side by side, kind of kind of like lines uh, email, and. Also, by default, it will store it all into one notational velocity database, but you can configure it so that it's, it's text files, uh, separate text files in a folder. And you're going to want to do that if you're going to want to integrate it with the other app that I mentioned, um, and that is plain text on iOS. So plain text on iOS is basically a you know list of files uh, text files you, you tap on one or you can create a new one and you can just start start writing and they're just plain text. Um, and the beauty of this is that you can synchronize that folder with those text files uh, through Dropbox. So you set your notational velocity to be a folder within your Dropbox and plain text has a built-in Dropbox syncing functionality that you can that you can use to sync with that same notational velocity folder. And so it's really great. I can, and, and the syncing is really fast because I can type something on my iPhone and then within seconds I can see it on my Mac. Uh, I, I think it takes a little longer to go from the Mac to my iPhone just because uh, plain text does not sync with Dropbox that often. Uh, but it's very easy just to tr- manually trigger a resync. So I find this really, really handy just to jot down little, little tidbits of information and uh, and, and synchronize it back and forth between a Mac and my iPhone.
1: So I use a different text editor for iOS and it's called nebulous notes. And it's, it's a similar idea, but it, um, I think it, it seems like it pushes the Dropbox integration a little, a little more than plain text does. When you, when you open the app, it shows your, well, you link it to Dropbox and then it shows your Dropbox folder and any, any file that it can read, which, you know, any text file, HTML, Markdown, plain text, or, even even Microsoft Office, it can preview but not edit. Um, it it shows those files with a little download button next to them, and so you can download those files to your iPhone and then start working with them. And it's 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 actually you know it's a good text editor for for what you can do with an iPhone. And it's got you know various built-in themes or you can make your own. And so there's one for you know I, I there's a standard black on white one, and then there's like a a fixed width. Uh, um you know, higher contrast code theme. And then it's got this um for the actual editor I like, it's got this little shortcut bar up at the top and you can configure custom special characters and anything like that to go on that shortcut bar. And then you can when you're when you're typing, you scroll through that bar to find the thing you want to put in without switching through keyboards. And you can put in macros there and that sort of thing. And it does a little bit of text expansion stuff. Does I it, think does it support text expander? I I was gonna. I think it does. I should double check that for sure. But I think it does support Text Expander Touch. And once you once you've edited a document, there's a little where the download link used to be. There's a little sync button. So you just push that, and it pushes it to Dropbox.
0: That's neat. Um, Yeah, uh, plain text does also support uh, Text Expander, which is good. One of the things I like about. plain text is that it just downloads everything and just keeps everything in sync. So you don't actually have to go and manually say, I want to download this, but I can sort of understand why, you know, if it, if it's attack uh, attached to your entire Dropbox folder, um, why that yeah. might be, I've got beneficial. a
1: lot of, a lot of text files in my Dropbox folder and it would probably be a bad idea to download everything. And especially, Like for Xcode stuff, there's a ton, you know, one Xcode project has tons and tons and tons of text files that get changed, you know, every time you save. And so that would actually be fairly slow. Like, you know, there's no reason I need these Xcode files on my iPhone, but every time I save from Xcode, all these little resource, you know, text files are pushed to the iPhone and that would take a while, especially over 3G
0: yeah um that's kind of if you're syncing with your entire Dropbox folder um notational velocity and and plain text are designed so that you have a special folder that's just these text documents, only these text documents oh, I see and plain plain text files you know they don't take up any information <laughs> hardly <laughs> that's true um you know, you you would be hard pressed to you know physically mash your keyboard enough, uh, you know, either your your iOS or your regular keyboard enough to actually create any meaningful sized files that would that would present a problem. I mean, a, a megabyte that's a, that's a, over a million bytes, and a, yeah. a byte's a character. That's a million characters. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's a that's a very long novel. So,
2: but it also uh, can still compress down to pretty much nothing,
0: and that too, yeah, yeah. So, um. So Notational Velocity is free. Uh, there's also a variant of it uh, called NVAlt. Honestly, I don't know what the difference is. I don't really care what the difference is, um, but some people might. So that is also available. I believe that's also free. And Plain Text is available on the uh, App Store. And it is also free, but it does have ads if you buy if you get the free one. Uh, there is a in-app purchase for $2 that will disable
1: the ads and the uh, nebulous notes app is on the app store for four dollars no ads
2: all right and i just use notes and i'm pretty happy with that Uh,
0: yeah that's also true (laughs) we should we should note that you know especially with icloud um hopefully notes thinking (laughs) will be a little more reliable than mobile me so maybe I'll, i'll give that another shot but honestly uh i don't like the marker felt and you know skeuomorphic notebook
2: (laughs) that they have for the notes Well, you can't do anything about the look of it that's why there are also options of american typewriter and helvetica
0: uh yeah 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 uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) one other one other quick aside since we talked about text expander touch um it'll be a really good day once the sdk is expanded if it's not already to support applications being able to change add and delete keyboard shortcuts that are now present in the built in iOS settings app. Uh, because I would love if Text Expander Touch was basically just a utility application on the iPhone, any iOS device rather, that you tap it. It does all of its sync. It tells you what it did, or maybe even not. It just closes the applications. And then all of those keyboard shortcuts are updated as needed on my iOS device. And I can use them identically as I would on a desktop. Uh, I know the difference is that you probably won't be able to do images and you won't be able to do things like macros where it actually prompts you for the individual fields that you can fill. Um, But even to get close enough that you can just put in all of the boilerplate text would be, I I don't want to retype all of that on my iOS device. I just want it to update based off what I already had. It's going to be a good day when we can finally do that by apps and text expander actually implements that.
1: Well, right now, the uh, built-in shortcuts on ios 5 can't have a space in them
2: what you mean you mean as far as like the keys but not the values right okay yeah i I, I guess guess you you can't om space w but the actual expansion uh, on space my space way yeah yeah it's
1: probably a small problem
2: but i don't have any shortcuts yet that have spaces so i'm fine with that but i definitely understand
0: yeah, uh, Merlin was actually going on about that on again one of his back to work podcasts. Uh, he was basically saying, you know, look, iOS five does have these things built in, but these are all the reasons why they're not, it's not as good as uh, Text Expander on the iOS. So again, he was he was doing a promo for uh, Smile Software at the time, so <laughs> you know, take that as as what you will. But uh, I mean, he, he's he's right. That uh, is just not as flexible, and it doesn't sync. You know, you can't synchronize those those expansion shortcuts to your Mac and use those. So,
2: I didn't even think about that because the fact that there's the built-in for the copyright symbol, the trademark symbol, the uh, you have to enable them, but the half, three fourths, and all of those kind of things, I completely forgot that pain even existed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Text expander kind of took over all that for me, and I'm pretty fine with that. you such a pain. You're so funny. (laughs) Thanks, Kyle.
0: All right. Well, this has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find us online at apple.blogoverflow.com. We would really like to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. We're looking for including community members on our podcast. So if you want to do that, just please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter. I'm... Kyle Cronin on Twitter. Um, do you guys want to be followed on Twitter?
1: No. I no. Don't do anything, Jason?
2: Either. Not particularly.
0: Okay. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Kyle Cronin on Twitter. I'm, I'm also on Google Plus. Uh, so just go to plus.google.com/slash uh, oh. one one two seven nine seven two six seven one one two four nine five zero two two five
2: three two. And if you follow that, <laughs> your name might be Bender Bending Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah
0: all right so yeah so yeah just you know until next time
2: you are off the rails on these endings sir (laughs) i can one i can tell you're proud about finally getting that underscore out of your name but two holy crap kyle come on
0: yeah all right fine write Um, it down
2: do it right come on
0: thanks for listening